This is Music Respawn. I'm Kate Remington with composer Michael Gordon Shapiro, and it's been a while. It's really great to have a chance to catch up and talk again. It's uh, always great to be on the show. I really enjoy our chat so far. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking with you about your soundtrack for Dice Legacy. It's such an interesting kind of world-building game, and it's created by a studio, Destiny Bit, that you've worked with before. And so what I'd love to kind of start with is what are some of the advantages of creating a soundtrack for a team that you have worked with before? I think there are certain what I'll call efficiencies in the collaborative process, because when you've gone through a project already, you've established a kind of trust artistically and a working language. You know, music, uh, instrumental music in particular, always involves some hand-waving. There's, there's no really specific conceptual content, and you're always speaking in moods and metaphors, and everyone has different taste. So when you've had the experience working with uh, creatives already, you have some shortcuts. You have some language that you might have established. It's a little bit like being in a, in a romantic relationship where you've got your own private vocabulary and, and touchbacks from, from prior, uh, prior times. So um, I think I was rewriting music a lot less than I was during Empires Apart. I kind of, uh, I was on board artistically. I had a sense of what our musical vocabulary was. And um, yeah, and I think, I think, Above all, there's a kind of fondness and camaraderie that we had developed over the last project, and it uh, felt like a reunion in a lot of ways. Oh, that's so great. I, there was a GDC session that I went to a, a few years ago about how much, I don't know, just trouble you can get into with the studio when you're not on the same page, and they are not really conveying the sound or the feeling or the mood of the music that they want very well, or the composer goes back and gives them something that they really don't want. And so, yeah, it's got to be great when you are working with a team and you've already passed that first hurdle. There's also something lovely about working with a smaller studio, because if you have a larger game company or a game company that is getting notes from a publisher, you can really have a too many cooks uh, situation. And sometimes a composer can get conflicting notes from different people and not know exactly whose opinion is you know outranks the others <laughs> so the, the nice one of the many nice things about a, a more intimate collaboration with a smaller company is that you don't feel like there's a committee there's just a small number of people giving you feedback yeah well i th- I, I love this game it, it feels really kind of handcrafted the artwork is beautiful and your music is such a perfect fit and i'm wondering what those early conversations were like. I mean, first of all, what was their pitch to you about what the game was going to be? Well, I had some early discussions with uh, Jean-Paolo Vernucci, and he said, Mike, we're doing something crazy. We're doing something that's really never been done. It's this, this wild experiment. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that was kind of where he was going from. And he's a very passionate, uh, very devoted game developer. He, he really loves every project that he's into. And he's a veteran, uh, both as a game developer and as a, as a consumer of games. So for him to say that he's doing something really different, uh, it was a little scary and uh, also very interesting. So he tried to describe this game and, you know, it's on a ring world and, and dice are actual in-game elements like characters. And I remember spending a lot of mental energy trying to just imagine what this was going to be like. 
And it wasn't until we finally, until I got to see some concept art and then some early iterations of the game where I could really grok it. You know, I could say, okay, I've got it. I can model the player experience. I kind of know what this is like artistically. So to actually answer your question, he uh, <laughs> described it as a uh, kind of a, a real-time strategy game slash city builder slash survival game uh, with a lot of stylistic influence from board games. And I think the most obvious of these is the aforementioned dice being in-game elements. Um, to those who, who might not have seen any visuals from the game, the dice do act as randomizers, as you would in a board game, uh, but they're also just physical entities in the world. There are houses that have dice in them. There are dice mining the mines and farming the farms and going into combat. The dice are your, your settlers, essentially. That plus the geography of the game, which is set on the interior of a ring world, really struck me, um, what well, was very visually striking to me, and that sort of thing often inspires musical creativity. So how did you get started then? I mean, the main theme is beautiful, but I don't know if you started with that. But what sort of ideas did you have initially to kind of flesh out this world musically? Right. Well, John Paolo is um, a passionate fan of game music and film music, and he comes with many opinions. So my job is to take those opinions, uh, separate the important ones from the more speculative ones, decide which are really going to service the game, and, and translate that into a specific melody or a set of themes. 
Um, I'm trying to remember back to the early days, but I think Jean Paolo really loved the idea of the cello as being the voice of the game. And thus we have the cello as the primary instrument in the main theme and uh, also recurring both during the summer music and the winter music. So it's, a, it's almost like a character in its own right. I think that was one of the, the major ideas Am I wandering off the question again? No, not, to do that. <laughs> not at all. What, what, I, what I love about the cello is that it works so well as a storyteller because it, it's basically in the same range, note-wise, as, as the human voice. And so you can really imagine a person or a character in this game telling you this incredible story. I think that's one of the reasons uh, intuitively Jean Paolo was drawn to that instrumental choice. And being a more calculating composer, I thought, okay, I can play low register, I can play high register, it has all these effects. It's a very practical choice when you have a uh, kind of a chamber ensemble where the, the live players are concerned.
so how how did you you know basically put the band together i i love the the chamber aspect of it and it it's such a good fit it doesn't overwhelm what's going on on the screen well i think there are a couple of elements that converged in terms of the game it might be easier for me to start with the mood of the game and then describe why we picked certain instruments to to accomplish that mood let me think so the game itself you know the mechanics of gameplay building um, settlements uh, constructing houses and combat, uh, them, they themselves are not necessarily uh, story elements. What what gives me more of a sense of story is the scenario of settlers arriving on this unknown land and there being a mysterious uh, group, a mysterious society at the other end of this stretch of a ring world. And uh, all the uncertainties and doubts and struggles that settlers face, the, the elements and um, the natives who are coming and raiding their civilization, and then this mysterious dark uh, entity or entities at the other end of the, the other end of the world. So uh, to me, artistically, this says, well, settlers bring aspirations and they bring fears. So musically, the the overall voice, I think, is one of aspiration and uh, a little bit of hopefulness mixed with anxiety, mixed with a, uh, a fear of the unknown. And that lent itself to a very lyrical approach for the uh, main theme, for example. You know, it's very melodic because it's kind of representing the soaring hopes and aspirations of, of these newcomers to this uh, relatively uh, unsettled terrain. So having waxed uh, at length about the, the artistic idea, we spoke about the cello, and um, I thought, well, the orchestra is our lingua franca for doing dramatic, cinematic, musical storytelling. So I felt like that should be part of the, the musical vocabulary. You know, the, the musical context is, is the orchestral language. And to that mix, I thought, well, we, I'd love a voice that somehow evokes the, the visuals of the game and the architecture of the, um, the game I guess the game architecture, not not the code, the actual buildings in the game. And the art direction went with a very Northern European-inspired look. Um, from the settlers to the structures to the windmills, it all, to me, kind of said, this is, this is Scandinavia, this is that part of the world. Uh, and I knew about an instrument called uh, the nickel harpa, which is a, a Swedish instrument that is um, kind of a combination of well, it has two mechanics for, for sound production. It's a stringed instrument um, that has a bow, uh, smaller than a violin bow, and it also has keys. So as you obviously know, a, you know, a traditional Western string player just uh, presses fingers down at certain points on the fingerboard that designates certain pitches, uh, and this uses keys um, sort of vaguely like a piano. So it's a weird visual image. If you, if you look for videos of nickel harpa players, it seems like this strange medieval device that's uh, just so visually interesting to look at. Because it kind of is. It's an ancient, ancient instrument. It is. And um, with, with the cultural specificity of that instrument, because it is Swedish, and that to me feels like it, it echoed some of the culture of the game, it also brings a expressive sound that is not polished. It's raw, it's, it's the sound of folk music. It's very sincere and um, very organic. So it doesn't sound like it's something that's the result of, of hundreds of years of, of Age of Enlightenment craftsmanship. It, it really feels like something that's been around for a while. 
And that is exactly the sound I wanted for this game, this, this instrument that perhaps the settlers themselves could have been playing. This could have been part of their, their folk music tradition. So that, that to me, um, was a really good choice for one of the, the voices of the score. And it blends together so well with the other instruments, which which must have been a challenge in itself, because you know the nickel harpa is its own thing, and the way that this was recorded, you can even hear the keys sometimes. There's like a little bit of a a mechanical sound because it is very very rustic. And first of all, how did you track down a nickel harpa player? Well, one of the joys of the social media era is that there is a new interconnectedness among composers. And I simply went to a Facebook group called Perspectives, which is kind of an online lounge for media composers. And I said, hey, who, who knows a, a nickel harpa player and um, specifically one who can self-record because we're in a pandemic and uh, I can't bring anyone to a recording studio right now. And a, a very kind colleague just popped up and said, yeah, call this guy uh, Matt's Wester. He's great. He's got his own recording studio. He's an expert in the nickel harpa. So I, I reached out to Matt, and uh, he was on board, and he could record himself with high-end gear, and he was a, uh, as a performer and instrumentalist, he was a veteran um, self-engineer, and it just made the process uh, doable in circumstances that were very challenging logistically. Yeah, for sure. I, I think one of the, well, unexpected silver linings is that game soundtracks and game composers have been able to keep musicians busy, the ones who can record in their studios. And many, many, uh, you know, performers were already recording at home. So, I mean, it, it's great that that was able to continue even through the uh, just all the upheaval of the pandemic. I think as composers, we have to balance the, the joys of convenience versus that enigmatic something that happens when you sit down in a recording studio with someone and the, the speed of collaboration. And um, we should never get so comfortable that we forget about that because there, there is a magic there. And um, as grateful as I am that I can just you know, email an uh, a instrumentalist and say, hey, I would, I would love the following. Here's the, here's the music. Email me back the recordings. As grateful as I am for that, I never want to lose touch with just that raw music-making experience that happens when you're in the same room and you can back and forth quickly and try different things. And um, ideally, it's it's nice to have both at uh, at your disposal. Oh, for sure. Well, how how quickly did you have to kind of get up to speed with writing music for a nickel harpa? I mean, does it have a specific set of... Um, you know, a, a, a range of notes? Is it in like specific keys? Or how challenging was it to, to write the music for it? And how much did you leave up to the player to just kind of improvise? 
I would say it was medium difficult, as these things go. Uh, easy is when you just mail notes, you get back music, and everything's exactly as you imagined. And uh, difficult is when the instrument is very complicated and you really have to learn uh, the mechanics of what's possible. Um, when, I, when I've written for the Chinese Gujang, uh, there's been a lot of self-education. Uh, nickel harpa falls in between. Uh, I needed to understand the range of the instrument, uh, the speed that the bow works, and the implications for longer tones. And I believe I also had to learn the capabilities of Matt's particular instrument, because I think the nickel harpers are not that standardized. So you, you need to know what your player has. Um, but uh, between Matt's very generous explanation and watching some videos on YouTube so I could see what the players were doing, I think, I, I think it wasn't too bad. I think I was able to get on top of it very quickly. With respect to improvisation, there was a little bit, but, but I, didn't, I didn't write slash marks and say go crazy because um, it just, um, I think for, for game music, for that kind of improvisation, you need a very long stretch where you're very flexible. And the cues in this game are on the short side. They're like three, three minutes long. But I did tell him to ornament melodies, uh, those little grace notes and trills and little licks, those, those folksy little gestures, uh, which I appreciate. And uh, Matt was very good in looking for opportunities to add that level of color and detail. Well, yeah, because that makes it sound really authentic. And, you know, as you mentioned, it sounds like, you know, one of the characters in the game could be playing it. And, you know, you mentioned that the cues are fairly short. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because real-time strategy games and world-building games, they don't have the same pacing that, you know, a story-driven game necessarily has with boss battles and that kind of thing, because... The player could take a long time, you know, managing their assets and deciding where to send their resources or their their dice or whatever. So, how did you work that real uncertainty into the music? One of the things I think about with game music specifically is what is the player's attention span? What is their frame of mind? I ask, how often are they reading text? Um, how often are they doing little fiddly things with interfaces? And I feel like the more distracted the player is, I shouldn't say distracted, that's, that's what they're there for, the more complicated the game is and the more, um, more text reading is involved, the less melodically busy the score needs to be. And this is just a principle I've, I've evolved over the years through experience. So for a game that's a real-time strategy game and you're really thinking about mechanics a lot of the time, you know, moving little critters around the map and deciding where these buildings are going, uh, I felt it lent itself to a more atmospheric and, uh, as I said earlier, lyrical approach, something that's that's broad sweeping gestures. And um, as you point out, gameplay on real-time strategy games can often be quite long, which brings up the question of, you know, what do you do to differentiate the music so that you're not, you feel, you don't feel like you're just listening to an album over and over again. Um, we took a couple of approaches. One is just add a lot of music. That's you know, the tried and true method for uh, covering a lot of gameplay experience. We, the music was written in layers so that when you first play the game, uh, before you've constructed a lot of your town's infrastructure, this sort of early hesitant exploratory phase of the game, you were hearing what we called the ambient layer of the music. And this is essentially the most 
uh, sustained aspects of the music, maybe the string bed, but not the melody, uh, maybe a slow melody, but not the busier counterpoint. The music has been thinned out to its uh, bare minimum to give you a sense of your, your place in the harmonic universe. As time goes on and you've built more of your infrastructure, I think there's literally a threshold number of buildings, you then get the melodic layer on top of the atmospheric layer so that the music becomes richer and more complex as the civilization that you have built becomes richer and more complex. Wow. Uh, you can always tell the reviewers who didn't play the game that long because they're the ones who are like, yeah, the music's so simple, it's, it's barely anything. I'm like, <laughs> okay, you, you played for about 15 minutes and stopped. So, um, so the, this double layering approach, which, which is a fairly simple example of a technology that's used in interactive gaming, I think fairly widely these days, helps differentiate the experience and helps make, it gives you a sense of reward for building your society. On top of that, there is a third level, third layer called, I think we called it the, the battle layer or the combat layer. Uh, the name, kind of a spoiler for what happens, but when the inevitable conflicts arise, when there's sabotage and when your buildings is on fire, then there's this um, additional level of music that's more percussive and more grating and um, dissonant. And that goes uh, kind of another way to differentiate different aspects of the game experience and make the music feel alive and responsive to what's happening. Yeah, and then you also created and included in the soundtrack music for various outcomes, like when <laughs> things don't go so well and your your community and your little empire it has been completely trashed. Um, and then 
music for when you do, you know, accomplish something. So it's it's interesting to hear the two contrasting, you know, cues basically for what happens in the game. I'm treading a little bit lightly because I, I want to avoid spoiler territory. Uh, there, there is actually a, a way to spoil the game because there's a there's a story here about the nature of the opposing civilization, the the others, and who they are, and what their relationship to the player is. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tip anybody's hat, but what I will say is there are a couple of different outcomes in terms of good versus bad ending, and it's not obvious which is which at first. So if you look at the the soundtrack album and you think, okay, that's the happy music, I guess that's when you destroy the enemy's capital and you spread salt on their farms and and you know chant their downfall, it's not actually that quite quite as cut and dry. And the the course of action that leads to the happy ending is um, it requires a little thought and uh, it's a little counterintuitive. Wow, it, that's really fascinating. And I think it it's really just great to have something like that because obviously you've invested hours and hours and hours. So you want it to be, you know, really satisfying whatever the outcome is. And you mentioned that the setting for the game seems to reference Scandinavia. And that's certainly true with the, uh, the winter time scenes. And I, I felt really like protective of my little dice because <laughs> winter's hard and, and they can freeze and you have to like bring them inside to a tavern and let them warm up by the fire. <laughs> so, I mean, I know there are a lot of cues, for a lot of, you know, visual cues for it being wintertime, but how did you kind of give winter a personality musically? Well, to me, what makes music cold is more of instrumentation. Uh, I thought about this quite a bit and I thought to me, what, what, Musically, summer is about harmony and tempo, and winter is about color and instrumentation. So this is obviously very subjective, and one person's summer instrument will be somebody else's autumn instrument. But uh, to me, um, piano in certain registers, uh, higher woodwinds played without vibrato, uh, instruments like the celeste that are uh, somewhat sustained in character, uh, and uh, a kind of textural interrelationship and a certain level of activity between main melody and counterpoint. Uh, this to me is kind of the sounds of winter from a musical perspective. There's a there's definitely a melancholy that I built into the winter cues because um, I wanted more of a sense of rejoice and, and happiness when we when we make it back to summer alive. You know, there's a, a sense of reward when you make it through a big cycle of the seasons. So the, the winter music is is meant to be a little bit um, I don't want to say depressing, but definitely melancholy and dark.
it's definitely sobering for sure. And even, you know, driving around here in Connecticut in the springtime, it's like the, the world's largest botanical garden with all the flowering trees and stuff. But driving through and, and listening to the winter cues, even with that, they're very somber. So mission accomplished, I guess. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to trigger anybody's seasonal affective disorder, but just trying to give a little bit of a, of a mood contour so that when summer comes again, you're just really happy for it. Well, yeah. And the summer, the summery music is so pastoral. And as I was listening to it, um, it really struck me that it has a kind of an English quality to it. It almost reminds me of some of Jessica Curry's music for Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. And I'm wondering if there's, you know, if there are any composers you'd like to, to credit as influence or kind of how you develop that sound. Well, I do, I do like um, there's a, the British symphonic tradition with, with Vaughn Williams and many of the contemporaries that tried to incorporate uh, folk music into the orchestra. Uh, the 19th century has um, Rimsky-Korsakoff and Mussorgsky and uh, Smetna, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, all these composers who were drawing from the folk traditions of their their culture and trying to elevate it into art music through the orchestra. And uh, I think any approach like this is, is indebted to that tradition because there's something really evocative about modal harmonies, you know, the kind of harmonies we get in folk music, particularly in you know, pre-20th century folk music, um, at least in, in Europe and surrounding areas. And that power just becomes um, amplified when you add the expressive colors of the orchestra to it. And I think either consciously or subconsciously, that's the tradition I was trying to follow.
it's wonderful. I mean, and doing it with a chamber orchestra is just such a great sound because it, you know, as I said, it it's not an epic. It wouldn't work in other games, but it certainly works in this one because it's a, a quieter, a quieter kind of a game. And so I'm wondering, you know, that we mentioned the the gorgeous cello playing of Simona Vitucci and the nickel harpa and. Were you able to use any other live musicians for the yes. performance? Oh, neat. I worked with a vocalist uh, called Uriel. She's a recording artist with a, a very uh, pure choral sound to her voice and impeccable intonation. And uh, she is responsible for the vocals, the sort of atmospheric wordless vocals in uh, both the summer and winter music. And... She also provided uh, lead vocals on a song, which is at the at or near the end of the soundtrack album, which musically, a song in the sense of a song with lyrics. Um, some people use the word song to be piece of music, so I guess I should, I just wanted to, for all those people out there, I was going to clarify, um, there's, a, there's an actual theme song in the literal sense for the game's score, which is uh, on the album as well, and is included, I think, as a reward if you win the game. Well, it's a beautiful song, The Land in the Sky. And I've talked with a few composers who have really tied themselves in mental knots trying to write a song. Um, you know, the lyrics are a challenge and then fitting the lyrics into a melody and stuff. And so how, how did that work out for you? It was an idea that came to me at the end of the process or near the end of the process. And I just reached out to John Paulo. I said, I have this crazy idea. Why don't we take the main theme of the game and turn it to a song with lyrics? And he kind of said, um, well, that's an interesting idea. How does that work exactly? And um, I had to then answer that question myself. What, what have I gotten myself into? Uh, the real challenge is, of course, lyrics. How do you write lyrics about a game? You don't want to write lyrics about game mechanics, Right? Unless it's supposed to be a funny song, you're not going to write lyrics about getting treasure and, and killing your opponent and getting to level 50 in Elden Ring or whatever. <laughs> um, you, you, know, you need to find some artistic concept that is specific to the game, but is also general enough that it feels like it makes sense lyrically. So what I had working in my favor is that there's so much story implicit in this game that there were several different um, options I had in terms of a lyrical focus. What I picked ultimately, the, the lyrics of the song, uh, The Land in the Sky, is the point of view of settlers who have arrived in this land, who are um, afraid but determined. And I, I did a little bit of constructive imagination. I said, what is the first thing that's going to strike you when you show up on this shore of this place? And it's the fact that, by gosh, you're on the inside of a ring world, and that's not a typical environment for people to see. And they might just look up, like visually up, and see this horizon stretching up into the air. And that is what's really striking about the, the game's environment. So my lyric version of that visual was the land in the sky, meaning you're looking up into the sky, and instead of seeing clouds, you're seeing the landscape. So that became the recurring lyrical motive for the song.
it works so well and it really kind of captures that experience of of being in the game whether you're the the king who's you know building an empire or one of the tiny dice who's out there battling and farming that kind of thing and when you reached out to me to to talk about this this score you mentioned that it's something that you're really really proud of and so i'd love to know you know what was really artistically satisfying for you about working on this score well i'll speak both generically and then specifically in the generic sense i love working with musicians uh, live musicians uh, in the days in in today's era where digital instruments are so convincing it requires a little bit of persuasion uh, for a project with, un, with with a limited budget to incorporate live musicians. And I'm fortunate in that Jean Paolo and the folks at Destiny Bit are big fans of live music and live recordings. So uh, that was a real pleasure. And, you know, the working with the nickel harpa for the first time and, and such a great instrumentalist was, was a new experience for me that was really gratifying. Um, I, I think the main theme came out very well. I'm very proud of that. I'm also fond of Summer Number 3. So if you look on the album, that's the one that's called Dreams and Aspirations. I, I liked that one quite a bit. Um, I, I was just, whenever I connect with a game or any project I'm working on uh, in a firsthand way, if, if it's a game that I like to play or it's a movie I, I like to see, there's always a little bit more resonance and I always walk away a little happier with the results. And I think that's probably true of, of every composer who works in media sure well it's it's such a wonderful soundtrack and it sounds great away from the game because the way that you put the soundtrack together it really tells a story and then in game it's just really spectacular so mike first of all i'm really glad you got in touch about it because this game was not on my radar at all and it's really been fun to talk about it so thank you so much well, thanks. It's always uh, always a pleasure being on your show. And uh, again, I'm sure I speak for the game composer community in expressing appreciation for your taking the time to explore game music out of context and to talk to we humble creators of uh, of this hybrid of art and craft. Oh, hey, it's totally fun. It, I, I'm a fan, so what can I say? <laughs>